Hello, and a very warm welcome to the latest episode of the Proximo podcast. This is your host, Thomas Hopkins, speaking to you from London. On today's podcast, I am delighted to be joined by Claire Barclay, a front-end projects partner based in Pinsent Mason's Johannesburg office, who will be discussing South African infrastructure development. Claire has two decades of experience advising predominantly government authorities and project companies on their concessions and various kinds of public-private partnerships in Africa and across a range of sectors, including all forms of transport, energy, water and sanitation, social infrastructure, and telecommunications. Claire has worked on large transport infrastructure projects in a number of African jurisdictions, predominantly in Southern Africa and East Africa. Claire also has a regulatory focus, providing legal advice and legislative drafting support to African governments and DFIs on sector-specific regulatory regimes, and more generally laws that affect the procurement process of infrastructure and energy projects. She has been invited to join various panels hosted as webinars, commenting on infrastructure projects and PPPs, particularly in East Africa. Claire is ranked in various legal directories, including Chambers Global South Africa, in the field of projects and infrastructure, the Legal 500 EMEA series, which recommended Claire for projects and infrastructure, and she is a highly regarded lawyer in transport infrastructure in IFLR 1000. The Who's Who Legal Government Contracts has since 2009 recommended Claire in the area of government contracting, and she is also recognized in Best Lawyers South Africa in the areas of project development and public finance management. Claire, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, Thomas, and uh, very nice to be here and to speak to your guests. Thank you. Yes, thank you. I'm sure that everyone will be very interested to hear what we've got to say in the, in the discussion. So obviously, I've got some questions lined up for Claire. So I suppose if we just jump straight in, I think with a kind of introductory question, Claire, what would you say are the main growth sectors within South African infrastructure development? All right. Thanks, Thomas. Um, so I'm just going to really talk about uh, growth sectors over the last sort of two to three years. And I think what it, the best thing to do is really to focus on um, an initiative that came out of our national treasury about two or three years ago called Operation Bulundlela, uh, which really sought to focus on what's called the network industries uh, in South Africa. So that would be electricity, digital communications, uh, water sector, and, and transport in particular. So perhaps really just to focus on those four sectors and just some of the developments that have happened uh, as a result of this Operation Bulundlela. So um, some of the listeners will know, for example, in the electricity sector, that there's been quite a lot of reform. There was an announcement last year about the raising of the licensing threshold for embedded generation projects from one megawatt to uh, 100 megawatts. And the result is that there's been a flurry of what's called captive power projects in the South African market. There's also, of course, the uh, REIMPPP, which is the uh, Risk Mitigation Independent Power Producer Program. Uh, that's been around for a little while now, for a good sort of 18, 20 months. Um, and just recently, three of the uh, shortlisted bidders signed their project agreements. And then, of course, there is the Renewable Energy Program, or the REAP, which is quite commonly known as uh, in South Africa. Uh, we're now in bid windows five and six, and that's been an incredibly successful program. So lots of developing, development in the electricity sector. There's also 
uh, a lot of work being done around hydrogen um, and uh, producing green hydrogen and, and ammonia and opening up that, um, that sector for, for the private sector. Um, when it comes to digital communications, um, there's also been uh, it's been a bit of a stop-start process, but there was always an intention for the government to make uh, additional spectrum frequency available uh, for mobile telecommunications. Um, it was dogged by a bit of litigation for the last few years. Uh, that came to an end early this year, and ICASA, which is the Independent Communications Authority of South Africa, has now auctioned um, spectrum bands. And this is really important to the South African economy because what it'll do is drive down uh, the cost of mobile data and make just telecommunications much quicker and faster. So that's another network industry. Uh, in the water sector, there's been some interesting developments, again, particularly around uh, more regulation around water quality in particular. There's also been regulation around setting up a, a structure for calculating water tariffs. And this was really important because a lot of water was being undercharged. And the result was that our water infrastructure was not being invested in because there was an under recovery uh, from water revenues. So putting a proper tariffing structure in place was really important to preserve the, the network, the water, the water network. And of course, there is, it hasn't happened yet, but there's been a lot of talk uh, in the media over the last sort of six months about uh, a big new water uh, agency, which will be responsible for bulk water infrastructure. That's called the National Water Resource Infrastructure Agency. Uh, that will be housed within the Department of Water and Sanitation. And that'll take over a lot of the functions of the currently the uh, TCTA, uh, trans caledon Tunnel Authority. And they are responsible for really big bulk water schemes throughout the country, uh, including the Lesotho Highlands uh, projects, etc. And then finally, just to talk about some of the, the changes in the transport sector, and, and we can talk a little bit more about this later, but there's certainly been when it comes to ports, a lot more um, an opening up of the South African ports sector, particularly when it comes to managing and operating uh, established ports. Um, so a lot more private sector participation. And of course, when it comes to rail, um, there's been um, the release very recently of a new national rail policy um, and importantly, a big drive by government to promote what's called third party access to the railway network. So, so traditionally, the railway network is owned and almost exclusively operated by Transnet Freight Rail. By opening up third party access, it allows private rail operators to uh, have access rights to the main railway lines, which is really important to service their customers uh, to get from uh, certainly when it comes to mining from pit to port. So that's really, I'd say, a sort of highlight, a whistle-stop tour of some of the key sort of infrastructure developments uh, in South Africa over the last two to three years. Thanks, Claire. Yes, I think that was a very good sort of whistle-stop tour, and I think that'll help kind of set the scene for some of the more specific points we've got coming up. So, so thank you. Um, to move on to perhaps slightly more specific uh, topic, I wondered to what extent does South Africa have a substantial PPP pipeline? Yeah, thanks, Thomas. Um, I wouldn't say that it's substantial. I mean, I think perhaps uh, just an introductory point is to say that 
while we have a lot of IPPs which um, have flourished under the Renewable Energy Program, uh, under South African law, IPPs are not regulated as PPPs. So they might be privately financed, but they're not regulated in the same way. So when I talk about PPPs, it's PPPs that are regulated under uh, what's called our uh, Public Finance Management Act. We've seen in recent times that there are a number of constraints with our fiscus. So our legislation, the legislation I was referring to, the, the Public Finance Management Act, requires that the Minister of Finance sort of underwrite the budgetary commitments um, to paying off the concession fees under a PPP, so the charges, and also obviously a termination payment as well. And I think for historical reasons, because of the enormous debt, particularly in our state-owned enterprises, that the fiscus has been quite constrained and not in a position to be able to underwrite a lot of the PPPs that are waiting to get into the market. So what we find is that there are quite a number of projects where feasibility studies have, for PPPs have been completed. Uh, but in terms of our regulatory framework, that before those PPPs get into the market, they need to be approved by the National Treasury um, by something called the Government Technical Agency component. Um, and we're, we're finding that they're, that they're being bottlenecked, if I can put it that way, or, or, or stuck at the Treasury level um, and not being given approval. And I think, I mean, this is, this is a very broad statement. It's not the case for everything. Um, but I think it's because of where we are at the moment. So there isn't a flurry of PPPs in our market. I think there's a lot of very interesting projects um, that the Infrastructure South Africa have uh, put together in collaboration with other government departments. Uh, but I think that right now, uh, because of our constrained fiscus, we're, not, we're seeing a trickle rather than um, the floodgates opening around a PPP pipeline. Thanks, Claire. I, if I move towards perhaps more, some more sector-specific points, and you did start to touch on this in your introductory remarks, um, and I, it's a very interesting point, I think, but uh, what opportunities would you say there are for private sector involvement in freight rail? Right, yes. Thanks, Thanks Thomas. Um, so currently, as I mentioned, there is um, Transnet Freight Rail, um, which is our state-owned entity that's responsible for uh, a lot of our freight rail. Well, they own the asset, they own the, the infrastructure, and they also own a lot of the, the rolling stock, the sort of above the ground and below the ground infrastructure, if we can put it that way. Um, so they recently, uh, earlier this year, put out um, a, a tender document uh, requesting interest from the public, from particularly rail operators, about having access to parts of the railway line uh, that they own um, and currently operate. And the reason for this was just that, I think during the COVID period, um, there was a slowdown of um, activity around rail. Also think that the it's not uh, a secret. I think most, uh, most of us know that um, our, our rail infrastructure uh, has really been beset by all sorts of um, challenges around theft. 
um, by very sophisticated criminal syndicates. And it's been incredibly difficult for Transnet to just keep up with the enormous backlog of not just maintenance, but actually repairing parts of the line that have actually been um, removed and stolen. So the result was that um, Transnet was operating at a much lower capacity than uh, in the past. And so I think there's, there was a drive to try and encourage um, more private sector use of uh, the national railway uh, lines. And this would obviously gen help to generate a little bit of revenue for Transnet uh, because of all the, um, you know, because of this enormous expenditure around trying to repair and maintain the infrastructure. Um, and so, as I say, a tender was released earlier this year. Um, it met with a sort of cool reception, if I can put it that way, by the market. Uh, it required all sorts of investments over a short-term period, which um, a lot of operators just felt that they couldn't make those sorts of commitments. But having said that, I think there were a couple of takers for um, access to lots along the, uh, the railway line. And so, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, I don't think it's been met with as much, uh, as much, let's just say, uh, as much um, interest by the public sector, by the private sector as was anticipated, but it's a start. It's a move in the right direction. And I think that's correct. I mean, apart from access, third party access, there's all sorts of other interventions as well that can be made by the private sector. And this is really clear from the new national rail policy that's just recently been released. So the intention is really for the private sector to come in um, and to operate not the main line, but um, what are called branch lines, and those will be concessioned. I mean, that's not new. That's been going on for at least the last 20 plus years. Uh, but there will be a, an increased drive towards the private sector operating branch lines. Um, there's also a shortage of locomotives. So there's going to be tenders shortly in the market for um, locomotives and that will obviously attract the uh, manufacturers of ma manufacturers of locomotives and then there's also a need for upgrading of current repair facilities which traditionally uh, transnet was responsible for but have fallen into some disrepair so there's a lot of private sector opportunity in that part as well so certainly opportunity for the private sector in the value chain maybe not so, uh, so much on the larger sort of rail track railway infrastructure, but certainly everything above the rail, such as the uh, rolling stock and um, operations of the sort of non-main lines. Uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity for the private sector. Thanks very much, Claire. That's certainly very interesting to, to hear about private sector involvement in freight rail. I mean, if I stick with rail as a sector, but move I suppose, slightly more towards a kind of passenger, kind of metro rail. Um, I just wondered how much progress there had been on launching a how train expansion project. And if there has been much progress, is this likely to be a PPP? Thanks, Thomas. Yes, it is likely to be a PPP, but it's likely to be a number of PPPs. Um, there was a, um, a very large feasibility study that was done about six years ago into the um, into the various extensions of the existing network for how train. So at the moment, it's it runs between Johannesburg and Pretoria, and then there's a a, a line that goes out to the uh, to the airport, to the international airport. Um, the intention would be to extend the line quite substantially um, and to take it to all different parts of the Gauteng province. 
um, going further east, uh, also going west, going down to the southwest where uh, Soweto is. Uh, so there's really grand plans to uh, extend the network. I think it's just, I think in, in, in the current climate, the ability to do that is relatively constrained just because of where we are as a country economically. Um, there's just no additional funding in the fiscus for uh, very large projects like the Gau train. So it's not to say that it won't happen at all. I think it will. And in fact, I think there was a tender um, towards the beginning of this year or, or uh, end of last year for transaction advisors to start looking at how they could raise funding from the private sector to fund uh, one or two of the um, extensions, the envisaged extensions. And I think that certainly hasn't gotten into the market, but I think that work is probably ongoing. There's also, you know, through COVID as well, there's been, I think, a decrease in the ridership, but I understand that that's going up a little bit as well. So before COVID, there was a big drive. There was just um, such high utilization of how train that they just could not key. They didn't have the uh, the train sets to keep up with the demand and so there was a, a drive to procure more train sets for how train to to deal particularly with the the peak hour demands um, and i understand that that had to be shelved just because you know from covid the ridership just fell down completely but i do understand that it's increasing now so maybe we'll see that there was a tender recently just to look at converting some of their power source um, to more greener um, solutions but the market is still waiting and i don't think it's off the cards at all uh, but the market's still waiting to see what happens with the extensions i think that's the big uh, that's the big next project for them all right, thank you very much. And um, if we move perhaps towards a different sector, um, to what extent is there scope for private part, sort of private sector participation in the port sector going forward? So there's actually quite a lot. And uh, in fact, again, this year, um, we've seen Transnet. So, so just to maybe take the listeners a step back. So for those that don't know, um, Transnet is the big state uh, entity that's responsible for all forms of transport from uh, rail to ports to pipelines. Um, and there are obviously Transnet uh, ports are responsible for our port infrastructure and also for operating the port infrastructure. And that happens through the Transnet uh, National Ports Authority or the TNPA. There are other um, entities in the Transnet fold. Um, they're sort of operating divisions. They're not legally separate. Um, there's, for example, the Transnet Port Terminal, which operate port, port terminals as well. And in fact, sorry, something that I sh may have should have mentioned earlier on about Operation Bull and Lela, a really important part of the sort of interventions around ports was to corporatize TMPA. That's still to happen. But I won't go into the details right now, but it was really important to do that because at the moment it's a little bit of a, a, a monopoly with Transnet owning everything and also operating. It makes it quite tricky to introduce private sector participation when uh, we've got a big state entity that's also competing with other operators as well as owning the asset. Anyway, so just to go back to your question. So there was actually earlier this year, a release, actually it started last year, there was a, a request for information that was released by Transnet into the market just to ask uh, international uh, terminal operators for their views 
on whether there would be appetite for uh, a private ports operator to come in and operate one of the uh, busy South African ports. And I think that they, that garnered a lot of interest and a good response uh, from the private sector. And so I'd say in about March this year, um, an RFQ was then released by Transnet, specifically looking for an operator, to, uh, an international port operator to come in and operate uh, a container terminal at Durban Port, um, Pier 2, and then another terminal down in um, Port Elizabeth, the port of Nkrucha or Nkura. Uh, and that would also be to, to operate the, the container terminal down there. So um, that process is ongoing. Uh, RFQ submissions have been submitted. Um, and so bidders are now awaiting the publication of the shortlist. Uh, and of course, the shortlisted bidders will receive an RFP to take it forward. So there's certainly, I mean, this is not something that we have seen for a very long time. Um, there was some sort of movement around this at some point a few years ago, and then it sort of died away down at the port of uh, Nuka, um, but then it sort of died away. So these are really good signs, again, that Transnet need to rely on, the, on private sector expertise um, internationally as well as locally to help them deliver on their mandates. So, I mean, this is very encouraging for our, our private sector clients that, that operate in this sector. Thank you. And just sort of sticking with the theme of private sector participation, but moving to a slightly different sector. Um, is South Africa seeing the emergence of privately run water projects or PPPs as part of its push for more private sector participation in infrastructure? Thomas, yes, it is. It is indeed. And in fact, um, Although I was a bit despondent about the sort of number of the pipeline of PPPs, uh, one of the sectors where we have seen uh, some PPPs in, in recent times is actually in wastewater treatment um, at a local government level. So that's really a sector that's getting more and more interest, um, again, needing private sector participation. I suppose that, you know, maybe just to take a step back from individual PPPs, there is um, a move more generally, a big push towards um, introducing a program for water reuse, actually one of a number of water sub-programs. Um, and the reason why this works really well in South Africa is um, especially in towns or uh, cities where there are some very large industrial off-takers such as mines or, or sawmills. What that does is if the private sector comes in and treats the water and then sells it on to a profitable uh, industrial off-taker, generally that keeps the cost of the water that's then sold and treated further for drinking purposes and sold on to the municipality, um, that keeps the cost of that water more affordable to the municipality. So there's this level of sort of cross-subsidization, if we can put it that way. So this is seen as a really attractive um, structure in the South African environment where municipalities are they don't necessarily have the, the deep pockets to, uh, to afford the infrastructure and to pay for the water. So there's a sort of a need to, to get the more industrial private sector um, off takers uh, involved to, to cross subsidize some of that cost. Um, and as I say, this is just one of a number of um, water 
sub-programs, if you can put it that way. There's an initiative that's been led by the Department of Water and Sanitation together with the uh, Development Bank of Southern Africa called uh, the Water Partnerships Office. It will be established in the DBSA, a bit like the uh, IPP Office for the Renewable Energy Program. And that office will be responsible for various water sub-programs, including water reuse, um, non-revenue, there'll be a program for non-revenue water or uh, water loss reduction as well. So there's a whole range of different water programs that will be packaged, if I can put it that way, by this office and then obviously uh, put into the market. So some exciting things in the water sector. Yes, it certainly sounds so. Um, and yes, thank you. I, we've got, I think, one last question lined up, Claire, and uh, that I think I'd like to move towards the, the the infrastructure fund, which is, as I understand, it been established over the last couple of years. Um, what exactly is the role of the infrastructure fund, and how successful has the fund been in relation to mobilising private capital for sectors such as student housing? Right. Okay. Thanks, Thomas. So I'd say that the infrastructure fund is still fairly in its infancy, although I understand that a lot of work has been done around um, uh, putting together structures um, for purposes of investment in infrastructure programs. Um, so the infrastructure fund was born out of a, a memorandum of agreement signed between, between the National Treasury, between uh, the Development Bank of Southern Africa and also the presidency. And the idea of the fund would really be to apply what's called a blended finance model to fund infrastructure programs. So it would be a blend of public monies, so um, from budgets for, for government entities and government departments, uh, grant monies, uh, depending on what you know, the sector is. Um, so that would be sort of public monies. And then that would be used to leverage then interest from the private sector and to attract private sector capital. Um, and the range of private sector players is endless. So from commercial banks to institutional investors. And I think that the, the structure that the infrastructure fund have in mind is really to try and pool all this capital um, where they have a particular program or projects or range of projects to invest in. Um, so it would be pulled within some kind of special purpose vehicle and then obviously deployed to different projects. And it hasn't, as I understand, they're still sorting out the, the different legal structures, um, the different arrangements uh, for different programs as well. Uh, but a lot of thinking has gone into that. And I think what that'll do is it'll drive down the cost of projects uh, substantially um, over the longer term. I mean, PPPs are, um, are looked to as a form of obviously um, harnessing private sector capital, but we all know that they're expensive for the state as well. I think through this blended finance model, it's not, um, it's, it's a way to bring in private sector capital for the private sector to obviously earn a return, uh, but also to blend it with, with public sector funds in a way that makes projects uh, possibly more affordable for the government and therefore a lot more scalable. So it's, it works particularly well in infrastructure that you can scale, as you say, in student housing, 
I understand that there's a, a drive for, for blended finance around social housing. Um, I'm sure it'll also be deployed for a number of the water sub-programs that I spoke about. So I think this is a really positive development for South Africa. There haven't been any active transactions yet, but I think it's just a matter of time. Thank you. And I, yeah, it definitely sounds like there's a lot of potential for development there. Uh, Claire, I'm very sorry to say that that's all we have time for today, but thank you once again for taking the time to speak to me on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much, Thomas. Thanks for uh, listening, and I hope you enjoy, your listeners enjoyed listening. I'm sure they will have it. I think it was a really, really fascinating discussion. Um, thanks Thank very you. much to everyone for, for listening, and I'd just like to take a moment to remind listeners about the release of Proximo's full-year report for 2021, which brings together our top-line market data, breakdowns of market activity by region and sector, league tables for bank lenders in the largest sectors and regions, and Proximo's 2022 market survey. That's all from me, so be sure to tune in again next week for more of your latest project finance, energy and infrastructure news and analysis from Proximo. Mm -hmm.